Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. My name is Matthew Westfox. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me this week is a, a very special guest, my friend Rebecca Rose Vassy. Uh, Rebecca is a writer, a variety performer, and a self-described shenanigator. Um, and she's going to be mm-hmm. joining us to discuss uh, the topic of the chosen one. Uh, what does it mean to be a chosen one in, in superhero and other stories? And what are both the, the good and bad parts of this topic? And, and, and uh, how do we need to play with it some? Um, Rebecca, would love to start by having you introduce yourself. Uh, say hello and tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, Matt. I'm really happy to be here today. Um, yes, as as Matt said, my name is Rebecca Rose Fassi. I am based out of the D.C. area. Um, I'm a nightclub performer and burlesque performer. Um, I have a, a blog that I maintain at divamojo.com. And, um, and I'm a lifelong nerd and geek girl who likes to get into meaty discussions about all kinds of uh all kinds of stuff around sci-fi and fantasy and superhero stuff so um i I really jumped at the opportunity to spend an hour talking with matt about all kinds of brainy nerdy stuff (laughs) sounds great that's what we kind of specialize in here so um (laughs) so yeah and i I, it started because you and i had started talking back and forth on facebook about this idea of the chosen one and like how how it's a topic that comes up a lot in these stories and, and, and has a lot of great points and, 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 and also some problems. So let me just start by what, when, when you hear the word chosen one, what do you think of? Like, what, do you, what does that term mean to you? So to me, the um, kind of the classic idea of that, um, which really comes, you know, straight out of mythology and biblical tradition and, you know, all of our, our cultural heritage um, it really refers to a character who is established within a story as having some kind of um, predestined role, usually a supernaturally destined role, yep. um, and frequently one that only they can fulfill, um, and that is usually accompanied by some set of, in some way, superhuman or extraordinary powers. Right. Um, though it can also refer to characters who are born to inherit a major title or legacy like the heir to a throne uh-huh yeah no i think it's a it, it's a really great way of framing it because it it is certainly something i think that comes to us a lot out of mythology and out of stories like that um but but it's interesting to me to see how many of our even like kind of the most modern superhero stories we still see this chosen one idea coming up you know like um have you i i don't remember if you and i had talked about it as a possibility but have you seen doctor strange the new yes movie? yeah to me that's one where you know, I was I was kind of surprised actually a little bit about how much there's this idea of like the, he him having these powers that are are the the, the cloak that chooses him and him being a, a chosen one figure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought they did an interesting blend in there with this idea that he actually you know had to do uh do a lot of work to kind of become worthy of, of that literal mantle right um and that a lot of the choices that he made within you know and especially by breaking rules like within the course of the story um kind of led to that happening it's a little bit of a twist on the trope because so often the chosen one is like sort of you know in the, in the kind of like classic hero's journey that everybody loves to base stories on because it's part of our cultural dna yep. um you know they uh, so often the chosen one is very young and has not 
has barely lived, let alone done anything, and maybe even from birth has been, you know, ordained with this particular destiny. So it was kind of interesting to see in that case uh, something where it was coming much later in life to somebody, you know, who already had exceptional skills in a different way, and it was just like a major deviation from the path that he thought he was taking in life. No, definitely. And I, and I think I, it's interesting what you said about how often the choosing seems to happen like at birth or very near birth. Because so often when we when we watch stories, like we're supposedly watching the chosen one to see like the things that he – and sometimes she, but I think we're going to talk about it's very often a he – um, but the things that he does and the thing, the thing, you know, the um, it, it it sort of seems like there's a tension of well, if this person has all of these, if this person was chosen for things that have nothing to do with him, then why are they an interesting character? You know, right, but, right, um, yeah, and and I kind of feel like there's there's actually two sides to that um, being chosen from a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's the kind of good and bad side and like to me the the sort of downside of it is um is you know when you've placed this burden on this character and said well they're going to do these great things and this is what they're going to achieve but they haven't actually done anything yet or necessarily demonstrated that there is anything particularly exceptional about themselves right now you know it's this kind of um how do I want to say it? Um, this kind of idea that, well, you know, well, you're just you're special and everybody kind of treats them as special. And it's like, right. well, kind of why, you know, and um, and then but then on the other side of it, um, it was something uh, one of the people I'll probably bring up a couple of times is Rob Bresney, who writes Free Will Astrology and mm. wrote the Pronoia book and a lot of great stuff. Look him up if you don't know him. Um, but um, he was. Uh, describing, I'm trying to remember. I think it was within. Uh, there's a figure within Tibetan culture um, who is basically it's a role that's assigned to a child at birth, and right. I'm, I'm not going to remember the the correct term for it. But um, but he wrote something that said um, that these children are told pretty much from birth, like this is what you're going to be. You're going to be this wise, basically chosen one, and he said like pretty much every child that grows up being told that fulfills that potential and so there is like so that's the kind of the positive side of the chosen one is if you're told like yeah you have a destiny and and you you're going to do great things and you need to be an exceptional human being because you need to be able to carry this burden how does that shape the choices that you make in your life and the person that you become in order to become worthy of that I, I mean in a funny way it's kind of the greatest endorsement of the everybody gets a trophy kind of idea because based based on that, we should just tell everybody that they're a chosen one. Um, but, Pretty much, well, and, and that's the other um, the other Rob Resney quote. And that was, this was probably the quote that really um, kind of set me off thinking about this particular topic in stories. Because you know, as a writer, I'm sort of fascinated by what makes stories work and um, and how you can play with you know some of these very um, dominant tropes that you see over and over again. Um, there was a, a Rob Bresney quote that he uh, put in something that said, you are the chosen one, but so is everybody else. Mm. And, and I kind of loved that because it was like, you know, yeah, there is something inherent just by existing, like you have this potential for some kind of greatness and to do something great in the world. 
but that doesn't mean that the person sitting next to you is lesser than you or that they don't have their own great thing to pursue and it also kind of means that if you're to me that if you're you know sort of chosen for something and you say well you know what like that's not my deal like you still have free will and there are other people who could be chosen for it you know that's one of the common story ideas that um tends to come up with chosen one is that you know you are the only one and if you don't do it the world is going to fall apart and whatever and and that's where it, it that's one of the things that i think feels a little problematic to me just because um because it's it's just so unrealistic. I mean, if somebody drops sure. a ball, like you know, there's probably going to be somebody else to pick it up. Well, and, and yeah, there's two things that hit me there. One is um, it, it reminds me of, and I think we're going to talk about this more in a little bit. But Buffy, you know, because yes. Buffy really gets, especially with the very end. Um, spoiler warning: We're going to probably be spoiling Buffy as well as a number of other things on this show. <laughs> we're just spoiling um, everything left. Basically, and right. we, we have cho- <laughs> we are the chosen spoilers. Um, but but yeah, but but so there's that. But but also. Um, it, it you know it, uh, something I've always been interested in is this idea of sort of value being exclusive you know and I don't uh, but especially like human value you know that like mm-hmm. for someone to be very good they have to be better than everybody else and I think yeah. that that's really wrapped up in often the way that that chosen often means that you have been chosen and that means that all these other millions or billions have not been chosen. You know, and exactly. that it's a sort of like a rising above. And what does it mean if really everyone is chosen in some special way? Um, yeah. It's so, treated very much as like this sort of, you know, zero sum thing. Right. Right. Well, and, and so let's let's get into that a little more. Like what so, – so what do you think is problematic about this idea of the chosen one? Like obviously it's a very common trope in our stories. Um, where, where do you see it as, as kind of uh, hitting, some, hitting some roadblocks? Well, one of the um, – one of the things that I think is problematic about it is that it, it's kind of on a meta level. Um, when when you have these uh, a lot of these things that that come from you know classical mythology or creation myths or you know uh, stories like that, a lot of that I feel like was a lot more understood to be a lot more symbolic. You mm-hmm. know, and back in the day, um, but. Um, I think that our our stories have become so much more literal now right. that even though you can still appreciate a story on a symbolic level, um, there are layers of reality and commentary on our you know cultural mores and, and things like that that are really really hard to ignore, and it can really reinforce a lot of. Um, a lot of our cultural beliefs and our cultural baggage and our stereotypes and our, you know, just a lot of things. So, um, and a lot of it comes out of our subconscious. So it's not necessarily that the writer sat down and said, well, I'm going to, you know, write a story about white supremacy, but you know, like then you happen to create a story where everybody who has powers is like some kind of white savior in some way. Um, and that's one of the big things is that partly coincidentally, um, because so much of our literature in all its forms um, has been so heavily slanted towards the dominant members of our society and our culture, which, you know, um, white people almost, you know, almost exclusively, um, very frequently male, usually straight, mm-hmm. um, cisgender and 
people who are able-bodied in some way. Yep. Um, you know, all of these things. Like when, so if you see, you know, a straight white cisgender um, guy who is the hero, and he's always that's always who's presented as the hero, and it kind of reinforces this idea that, like, you know, people who are like that in reality are, <clears throat> excuse me, in some way. Um, better or deserve more privilege than other groups. Oh yeah, and I think it's really important to think about that. Like we think of the chosen. You and I are talking about chosen one specifically as like a cultural, as a literary trope. But I mean, a lot of you know, you look at like early anthropology. You know, stuff where they were saying like, you know, that there was a real belief that like the white race was the chosen race by God. You know, that men were chosen by God to be the rulers over women. You know, I mean, like there there is. It, it's not just a, a literary illusion, but there is a lot of like historical relevance to the idea of certain kinds of groups of people being literally chosen by the powers that be to rule over everything. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, I think when when our even though like I think we we mostly although obviously not entirely but we we mostly as a culture have, have are starting to move away from those ideas. But but there there's there are enough there in the background that when they're mirrored by the the media we watch it can it can be pretty problematic. Yeah, and and when you consider that we're only you know a couple hundred years out of um, a world that was primarily um, you know monarchies right. and and clans with rulers and and things like that oh, where yeah, divine right of kings that's chosen ones it, exactly yeah and and i mean you know that's hard to argue with <laughs> like when you're like well i have all the armies and i say that god picked me so you know what are you going <laughs> to do about it um well yeah the, like that that becomes really really deeply ingrained in who we are so in a way like to, you know talking about stuff like this today i feel like um it's part of a, a kind of a deconstruction that I I think we're starting to have as a society about unpacking a lot of these like really really old deep seated ideas oh, yeah. that we have and and talking about like how do we move forward without you know this without relying on some of these old ideas that we're not practicing in our daily lives anymore. I, I mean, it's funny. I hadn't thought of this until just now, but as we were talking about this, I was thinking about sort of historical things as well as this idea of like, are you chosen just by fate or are you chosen because of something you do or are you chosen because like something you do is because of by fate? Um, and I realized uh, the King Arthur story is in some mm-hmm. ways like the perfect example of a chosen one story, you know, of what we're talking about because it's the person who... You know, he he pulls the sword from the stone, or the the sword is given to him by the lady in the lake, um, mm-hmm. as Monty Python points out, a, a strange way of devising political systems. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, but if you think of it, it, it is a, a quintessential like historical mythological chosen one story in that regard. And he does something great, but the idea is that you know only it, it it's almost that it's not that he's chosen because he can do it. It's that this test was set up as a way to find the chosen one. Right, exactly. Um. Well, yeah, and so so I think that that um, the, the the historical thing um, really important to bring up, um, and, and and I know that was another thing you wanted to get into of the when we think about chosen one. How, how do you think this this plays into this idea that we often have? Since so often it does seem like that the, the chosen one is going to be chosen most often for his physical power. Um, yes. So where where does that play into kind of your thinking on this stuff? Um, so that's another 
it's partly a story thing and also partly kind of a meta, you know, society level thing is that so often the idea of the chosen one is also um overlaps within the story with the kind of might makes right idea. Uh-huh. And um the idea that um the only interesting conflict is a physical conflict or that the person who is right is also the person who has the physical power um to um enforce that you know that moral reality that they have right and it's you know it's a very i mean it is a very ableist um approach to to um to literature and that's something that i feel like we're is a really really recent unpacking too because you know throughout our entire literary history like any deviation from physical health has you know especially one that is visible um, physically is always shown as some kind of uh, a symbol for character weakness right and i think that's one of the major changes that you know that i think writers and and other cultural creators are trying to make now is to try and examine that and trying to be more inclusive and and question you know why is um being peak physical health you know why is that equated with being a good person or why does um why is the only answer to a conflict within a story a a physical one and right. and a violent one yeah it, it, it's a really interesting one especially because in terms of like uh, when when we're chosen like that when a character is chosen like that are they chosen just because of that physical thing and, and what does it say about the violence um it, uh, uh, on our last podcast, actually, we talked a little bit about this question in regard to Doctor Strange, which you and I were just speaking about, because uh, I, I, there's a lot of things I liked about that movie. There were some things I found problematic. One thing I did really like, uh, and I think this is somewhat new, is, is the extent – is the role that him becoming disabled sort of plays a part in his journey towards finding his status as, as a sort of chosen one, as you were saying – um, mm-hmm. But where instead of as it's as sometimes happens of he gains a power that allows him to overcome his disability, it it him becoming whatever he's becoming is a lot about him learning to live with the disability, you know, to learn with the physical infirmity that he has. Instead of as you said being chosen, like in some ways he's almost chosen because of what happens to his hands. Instead right. of you know the, the the classic as you're saying like you're chosen because you're the biggest, the strongest, the best. Yeah. Yeah, you can make the same case for Daredevil too. I mean, he yep. doesn't start doing anything until he's blinded. So right. Well, and, and Daredevil, I think, is a great example of um, something you were speaking about before, with with in terms of race and stuff. Because um, have you also seen Luke Cage? Yes. Okay. I I love both of. Them. I I think those are two of the best. Oh, me too. Superhero. <laughs> I mean, yes, great stories. But but I think there's something really because in both of them. They're kind of chosen ones in that, like, they each get their powers in ways that they don't have any power over. You know, they don't seem to want it. Mm-hmm. Daredevil says to himself, I have this power. I have to go out and do this thing. I have to use my power to go out and try to exert my will upon the world because I want mm-hmm. the world to be a better place. Luke Cage, on the other hand, he really seems to fight it, you know? And, I mean, this isn't just in the, in, the, in the show, but certainly in the comics as well. But especially in the show, we spend a long time of him really not wanting to be a hero. Um, and, and obviously those are just two examples, but I think this is the, what I'm getting to is a trend I think I see a lot. I, to me, race has to be a big part of that, you know, in terms of it, it feels like it's a lot easier 
for a white character to accept their place as a chosen one. Is that something that you kind of see? I definitely think so. I mean, partly it's, you know, just that it's so prevalent um, that, you know, we as viewers or readers or whatever don't tend to question it as much you know it's so you know when that shows up you're kind of like oh okay like this is you know this is really familiar to me um but i think also it is very much easier because a lot of what ends up happening um when somebody steps into that role in a you know particularly in a superhero capacity is that um they're basically, you know, they're going out and and kind of, you know, they're taking the law into their own hands, or they're, you know, enforcing their own moral code on the world, or you know, whatever it is. And particularly in the case if you're doing something that's, you know, effectively um, vigilante work, um, that's something that a white character is going to be able to get away with, and even, you know, be rewarded for much more than somebody of pretty much any other race and especially more so than a black person um and and i the thing that i also find really interesting about luke cage is that um look and and i'm talking really about the um the original version in the comics um is that he i mean it it was so progressive to have such a racially charged story at the time that it was created what was also really interesting is when he first sets out he's a hero for hire right so you know he's like hey like uh, you know i got i got screwed over by the system and i have these powers and i didn't ask for them and i'm gonna go do some good in the world but like i gotta make a buck yeah and i find (laughs) that like you know like to me that's just like kind of refreshingly practical Mm -hmm. um you know because you in so many other stories you have like you know you have spider-man who's you know peter parker's gotta like you know carve out a living doing journalism and he's like the blue collar hero and you know whatever so he's got like that divide of like trying to balance that and then on the other end of the spectrum you have batman who's just like i have a cave full of all expensive toys because i can do whatever i want because i'm a rich man you know (laughs) No, I, I think that's definitely true. And I think when I, um, when you made that point about Luke Cage, uh, the immediately other person I thought of is Jessica Jones, who, yes, who also yeah. um, in the show, but even more so in the movie, in the in the comics, you know, she's a private detective who uses mm-hmm. her superpowers to make money. Um, yeah, and I think and, and whereas Daredevil, I think is is I mean he's a lawyer, and that's although he's a very bad lawyer in the TV show <laughs> at least. I don't know how much longer he's going to make money doing that, but yeah, but it, it it's. I, I think there's a sort of there, there's an ability of there's a perceived ability of the of the characters with the most privilege to sort of have this altruistic you know I'm doing this for the good of all even though even that's kind of problematic I think because they're the ones deciding what's for the good of all but still yeah. the, the, like they seem like they're kind of rising above it whereas the characters like like you said Luke Cage like Jessica Jones who aren't white necessarily who aren't male. Um, they're they're having to to find ways to do some good in the world, but also do some good for themselves. Um, yeah. And one of the other things that really distinguishes that trio in particular, and part of what I love about the TV shows and how they're um, how they're really taking these characters in these directions, is that they're all part of their the communities that they're working in. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jessica Jones and and. Um, and Daredevil are kind of in similar areas of Manhattan 
and Luke Cage is only a few miles away, but like they might as well be in different universes. Oh yeah. And but they are really, really immersed in like they know the people, they know, you know, who are the players, they know um you know, like one of my favorite scenes in Daredevil is when um uh they're in uh, uh Foggy's in the bar and uh, and he's pointing, and it's this hell kitchen, Hell's Kitchen bar, and there's all these, you know, tough customers around, and it looks like you're very stereotypical, like, oh, this is a bad news kind of place. And he's just going around and pointing out the individual people and saying, like, oh yeah, this guy, his kid just got into Saint Teresa's, you know, yep. school or whatever, and this guy, like, he's taking care of his mom or you know, like whatever it is, and really, really humanizing those characters. And you're like, you know, the the concept of having built that kind of um even though he himself in in that scene is not the um the superhero that concept that there's the social capital there and the the network and um you know everything and the immersion in there that it's not just a like savior comes in from the outside which is another thing that tends to come up a lot in you know chosen one stories you know the the, the great white savior is like right <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're right because those those neighborhood stories. It's much more about the idea that all these other people, you know, in Luke Cage, Luke is doing a lot, but you know, like Misty Knight is doing so much. You know, the other mm-hmm. like he's relying on so many others to rise up in ways. Exactly. Um, yeah. And and I've always liked that, to me when I think a chosen one story can have some real value, it's when it can be more of the like what the chosen one can do is to inspire everyone else. You know, and that kind of going back to the, the the comments you were saying of like, because to some extent, maybe it's just this person has recognized the fact that they're chosen, and is now helping everyone else to discover that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, so well, let's using that. I think that's a great way. Let, let's dive into Buffy, which is, I think, actually a, a such a great um, way of playing with this whole concept because the show is so much about the evolution of the concept of the chosen one. Exactly, and you know, I, I was I, I was an am a huge Buffy fan, and there was just a point at which I was, you know, anytime Buffy came on the screen, I was like, oh Jesus, like are we gonna have to listen to her whine about how <laughs> hard it is to be the chosen one again? <laughs> like, you know, I just got so tired of it, and um, and which is you know another one of my my sort of feelings about what's problematic about the chosen one is that it tends to overlap to the it sucks to be the chosen one which you know tends to lead to a lot of like whiny angsty stuff that's like oh god like yes we've been there we understand it's hard and you want a normal life like let's move on that's not what's gonna happen (laughs) but putting aside even any ethical issues it can just be a very cliched ground to go over Um, exactly and yeah and i mean it's it it's probably um fairly truthful and and realistic but um you know when you're watching something long form like Bub- buffy you're just like okay like <laughs> we've heard this already um well, I, i'm sure i'm not the first or the last person to say that i i love the show buffy and i thought buffy is probably herself one of the least interesting characters of all of them um but 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 i think in, in, in part it's because to, to me when she's at her most interesting is when she's really wrestling with this concept of what does it mean to be chosen and who chooses and why do they choose and and what power does she have in that? And one of the things that I found most interesting about the way that they ended up playing with the, the con this concept of the chosen one is, um, especially towards the end, um, as she's 
learns more and more about the history of the Slayer and and the heritage and legacy of it, um, and kind of discovers you know the 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 sort of horrible nature of its origins, mm-hmm. um, realizing that effectively like this is like a group of guys you know like a group of of shadowy old men who say like we're gonna pick a young girl and make her do what we think she needs to be doing with her life right and she ends up kind of you know really taking back that um bit taking back that power and saying i don't have to do what you want and i you know i'm not shaped by who you are and if i'm gonna you know if i want to free all the other potentials and create an army of slayers like that's what i'm gonna do and i i, I think that's probably when i liked her the most yeah <laughs> well, you know when she started being like you know um like Master Buffy, like training all the the, the little Slayer rats. <laughs> well, and let's start there because I think you're right. What, to me, one of the, the first things that I think of when I think of Buffy and this idea of her as because she's literally supposed to be a, the chosen one. You know, she's a Slayer, and there's yeah. this whole idea in the show that there's one in every generation, and that when one dies, the next one steps up. Um, but it, but as you said it, it like, and I think this is a question that happens in a lot of these chosen one things is. It, once you have someone who is chosen, the next question is who chooses them. Um, right. And I think it really matters in the story if, if when, when the story is just they were chosen by fate, you know, they were chosen by the divine or by God. It's very hard to argue with that. And, and what I kind of like in Buffy is that they really explain that it, it is a group of mortal humans, this, and, the, and that can, this this idea of this, the Slayer's Council. That way back in time chose the first Slayer and now continues to do so, and that 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 can be fallible, you know, because it it it, it, it gets us away from the idea that the chosen one is that 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 is infallible and thus can't be argued with. Right, and yeah, I I feel like um, the idea of the chosen one, sort of ordained by God, you know, whatever the God of the universe happens to be. Um, I think it's really easy for that to just become lazy writing yep. in the sense that, you know, it, it's like, well, I'm setting this up so that's we're just going to eliminate any question of whether or not this is correct or true or whatever. Like, it's just a rule of the universe that this is how this is. Right. And um, and it's also, as you pointed out, you know, kind of within the world of the story, like, it's really <laughs> – hard to push back against somebody who's like, well, you know, God said so, so tough, you have to listen to me. Um, and, but what it often, um, what it can, what it can do right, I think, when it, um, when it comes from that kind of, like, on high source, um, is calling in the question of, um, can destiny and free will coexist? Yeah. It's and, such an important question. And Tolkien thought so, mm. um, because the the um, what he sort of put forward was the idea that God makes the call. You know the, that uh, the God of Middle Earth, you know, calls to the hero and says, "Okay, here, you're like this is the thing that I want you to do, and this is the part in the great scheme of things that I want you to play." But that you have the free will, the character has the free will to actually make the decision to accept the call. Mm. And if they were to not accept the call, um, Tolkien's belief was that God would go and go to somebody else and say, okay, well, now I call on you. 
Um, and we can really go down the rabbit hole with like, you know, uh, well, if God is omnipotent and omniscient, like then, yep. then he already knows that that's going to happen. So it really is predestined and whatever. But, you know, um, but I kind of like that that idea that um, I think that creates some interesting possibilities to say like, OK, you know you've been presented with this great opportunity it's you know kind of goes back to that you know you are the chosen one but so is everybody else right and you have to actually make that decision and and come to terms with why it is that you are agreeing to do that which is more interesting to me than oh this burden has been imposed upon me and i have to do it because if i don't nobody else will and boohoo my life sucks because i don't get to you know be normal ever Right. Well, I think that's – to me – and again, uh, there's obviously a lens that I bring to a lot of things. But I, I always think that, that that kind of like, oh, boo-hoo me, it, it, that, it feels like that you have to have a lot of privilege to be able to start from that position because yeah. there, there is sort of an element of like – of just assuming power instead of like the Luke Cage or Jessica Jones of like what, – what like I, I, I couldn't just assume that this would be me because I would have to – be putting myself in real danger to assume that much power. Um, yeah. But but as well as just the idea that um, I often – when I hear someone say, oh, boo-hoo me, I don't want to do this, but I have to, granted I'm kind of cynical, but there's a part of me that always thinks on some level you want to and you don't want me to think you want to. You know, <laughs> like I get pretty suspicious of the – I have to do this. I wish I didn't, because I I tend to think there always is a way to say you don't have to. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think there's kind of a um, a danger in there of like you're setting up this character with this martyr complex where what they really want is for people to like support them and surround them and do a lot of emotional labor for them to tell yep. them like oh poor you and what can we do for you to make this burden easier and like you're still benefiting from all the attention and the glory and you know the everything else right because you also got you always kind of wonder to that extent like you know okay harry potter is chosen Granted, in his case, it's, it's by his – as you pointed out in, in one of our discussions, by his antagonist, not by something else. But he, he's kind of chosen. But, mm-hmm. but does that mean Hermione and Ron are chosen? You know, like because they, they have to do all the emotional labor. They have to go along with everything. They have to sort of be, be there every step of the way. You know, who are all the other people who are being affected by, by, the, by these heroes? Exactly. And that's, you know, another one of the, the – things that I that I kind of have problems with with the um, the classic sort of chosen one story is how often it does take the these people that surround the character and relegates them to purely support roles or to onlookers or to arm candy or you yeah. know whatever it is that's like very kind of two-dimensional um, and then and that's not even you know touching on the people who are just like the faceless masses in the background yeah. and like what what do they matter? Um, I mean, that to me, one of the most dangerous things about saying, like, if you realize that there's a person in your life who has been chosen to have, like, major important life events happen, your life is now in great danger because it's highly likely that you're going to die so that they can learn something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a um, – it, it's a um, – it, it's such a common trope but I think a really problematic one when you start seeing, like – when the other characters start becoming potential plot points for the main character instead of like you know fully developed characters in and of themselves yeah and and i think that um 
part of the problem that I that I have with that too is that it reinforces this idea of like, you know, as we touched on a little bit earlier of this like kind of bootstrapping mentality and you know the the Horatio Alger story of uh, the self made man and and it really ultimately the stories really focus so much of the glory and attention onto this chosen one and kind of minimizes the contributions that others have made and the sacrifices in a lot of cases as you just pointed out that they may have made like you know if you're an old wise father figure like and you've got a young chosen one like i'm sorry but you're gonna go (laughs) (laughs) i hope you have your affairs in order because the end is nigh (laughs) get same thing if you're a love interest you know if you're a love interest uh, and 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 you're hero hasn't yet figured out that he needs to go out and do the things you're probably going to die so that the hero can decide he has to go off and avenge you you know oh yeah yeah stay um, away from refrigerators yeah <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> well and let's talk about that a little more in terms of buffy because that that's where i think that as, as we started to talk about but i wanted to go into deep more in more depth that the end of buffy which um and i, I haven't seen it in a while but i want to kind of like remind our audience um and, and help me fill in the gaps if i'm wrong but but basically it's that by the end, as you were kind of saying before, she figures out that she has this power, but that millions of other women across the world have the ability to be potential slayers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not everyone is, but certainly a lot are. And she sort of figures out this magical way to unlock all of their ability to be slayers all at once. Yeah. Um, so so what, what is that – to you, what, what happened there in terms of the chosen one trope? Um. I feel like it's that's a little bit symbolic in the um, in a, in a sort of you know empowerment in general sort of way mm-hmm. of like you know when you're a teenage girl you're not really told that you're useful for much of anything except you know distracting boys with your tank tops at right. school or you know whatever <laughs> the ridiculous shoulders yeah exactly <laughs> um, so. Um, so I feel like it was, you know, kind of incredibly powerful on that level just to kind of send that message out that, like, you have so much more in you than you probably ever thought that you did. Mm-hmm. And you have some um, – and and you have some measure of responsibility to do something good in the world, um, which I think is one of the more p- – positive aspects of the chosen one is is that generally they're supposed to do something good um and and to be able to say like hey like there's a lot of work and we need to share all this work is pretty tremendous um it's also you know purely from a a logistics point of view like it's buffy is clearly smarter in in that instance than generations of of counsel and watchers and everything who are like oh yeah like we'll have just one and she's special and like great so she's gonna live in sunnydale and take care of all monsters in sunnydale and meanwhile like there's monsters all over the world that nobody's taking care of or they they keep mentioning the detroit hellmouth which is never discussed (laughs) yeah exactly never dealt with it's like well you know screw the people in detroit for some reason like um but uh but you know it's just so much more practical to say like if we have this huge network, not everybody has to do this specific work, but there's plenty of people to go around to do it. And to me, that was fascinating. Um, and it also, uh, speaking of the, you know, the idea of the people who surround the main character, one of the things I think is really important to give credit to Buffy for is the fact that, um, 
even though the the Scoobies are are all basically, um, you know, they they do provide so much um, support and so much focus on Buffy. They're generally like extremely gifted in their own ways and very strong and very um, very noble mm-hmm. and um, and have a wide range of talents. And it's really pretty clearly established that. Um, Buffy is a, a superior slayer because she has that. Right. That most slayers tend to be, you know, loners and they tend to die young because they burn out and they get killed and, you know, whatever happens to them, but they don't have a support network like that. So I feel like, you know, uh, Joss Whedon deserves a fair amount of credit for the fact that he really did make efforts to highlight and and give viewpoint to the the characters that surrounded her in a way that doesn't often happen in those type of stories. It's true, and I, I actually think, and I, I don't know if it is just Joss Whedon, though, I think it, it's certainly possible that it may be. I, I haven't traced the history of it. It does feel like that's actually now become fairly common. Like, I can't think of many... Daredevil is actually one stark um, counterexample because he tries so hard to hide it. But I'm like thinking, like, do you watch many of the CW shows? Like, Not really. Uh, they, they they have their, their their they have their good points. They have a lot of soap opera, which can be both fun <laughs> and kind of ridiculous. Although the Flash, I think, especially is very good. Um, but in all of them, in the Flash, in Arrow, in Supergirl, um, there, there's a real sense of there may be this one in particular superhero, but then they each have their like supporting cast of characters who is. Mm-hmm. Um, in in some cases, many of them become powered themselves. In many cases, um, excuse me, um, and they're sort of almost you know breaking the fourth wall jokes about like, do we need to change the name of the show because like it's not just that one person with the powers, <laughs> but and, and even when it's not powers, that there, there is a real sort of growing sense of, you know, even if this one is chosen, they still they still need to rely on the other people, which I think you're right is is somewhat new in these genres, and I think is really is really necessary. Um, both because it just makes a more interesting story, but also because I think it, it it reflects a much more uh, a much what I think is a much a much ju- a much more just vision of what working for good can can look like. Exactly, I think it's kind of a combination of the um, the increasing sophistication of storytelling in uh-huh. some of the long form mediums like TV and comics and things like that over the last few decades. Um, because you know, if you look at like some you know early superhero TV shows like the the early Batman or whatever, I mean they're they're all just they're so ridiculous. Like yeah. we can't even <laughs> really bring that into a, a discussion, a serious discussion here of like chosen ones because they're all like so cartoony. Um, but yeah, so we have this like increasingly sophisticated um, storytelling and this overlap between you know TV and film and you know all, like so much richness to play with and and kind of combining that with the um, desire I think a lot of writers have to um, break through tropes and to subvert them and to um, come up with new paradigms and things like that. You know, I think it, it the the combination um, creates a lot of that. But I think part of it too is that um, we're seeing more long form, more mainstream long form stories about yeah. um, these you know superhuman in some way characters. Because um, when you when you're talking about just a single novel or a movie or like whatever, they're you know, you can, it's kind of understandable to some extent that there's going to be a narrower focus, mm-hmm. um, 
just because the the medium is is so much more self-contained and it's like well you you can't necessarily spend 1200 pages roaming all over and dealing with uh, 12 different characters unless you're George R R Martin right <laughs> like um so yeah, so you gotta like kind of keep it tight. But even within that, it's like what's you know the challenge for the writer? Then I right. feel like is how do you um, keep a coherent narrative structure, but then still at least indicate that there's more going on than the limited piece mm-hmm. of the world that you're looking at right there. Well, and so let's talk about as you said because I definitely agree with you. I think there are a lot of interesting things coming up, especially more recently. What what are some of the stories that you you look to a lot as as kind of either better examples of um, different ways of doing a chosen one story or or of superhero stories or hero stories that really get away from the whole chosen idea entirely? Um, One of the – my favorite kind of chosen one stories that I think um, is a great alternative to um, a lot of the the downsides of the trope is The Hunger Games. Because to me, Katniss Everdeen is is kind of the opposite of the chosen one. I mean, she was literally consigned to this life of being a faceless nobody. Right. And the only reason that she has this opportunity is that, you know, she is feels strongly enough about her sister to say, like, no, I'm not going to let her be sacrificed. I'm going to take her place. Right. If there's and, anyone chosen in that universe, it's her sister, technically. Like she, exactly. She, the whole thing starts because she's not chosen in the lottery. And to and knowing what we know about uh, about Prim, like the likelihood is that she was chosen for to be a sacrifice. Like right. she probably would not have survived the games. So, <clears throat> so you have, um, you know, Katniss going out, and she has no illusions about being a great hero or achieving glory or like anything like that. Like she's basically just like, I'm going to try and do what I can do to survive and. Uh, and get back to my family who I love and, um, you know, and, and try and help the community that I came from and try not to lose myself in the process. Yeah. Which I think is a pretty exceptional thing that she kind of seems to have this um, level of awareness of I, it can't be the ends justify the means. I have to find alternate ways to do things. I have to remember who I am and stick to who I am. Right. And she's obviously still a pretty exceptional person because she shows a great deal of aptitude for everything she's trained in. She's incredibly smart. You know, she's she's got the stuff, but it's not really... I don't feel like it was ever really indicated that it was like, well, she was meant to be this great hero, so therefore she was imbued with these powers. It's like she happens to be good at the things yeah. that need to happen. And well, it's what's fascinating to me about it is how much the world around her elevates her to the position that she takes. And she is kind of reluctant about it, but she accepts it because she understands the symbolic value of it. Yeah, I, I, it, 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 that's kind of what I was thinking as you were saying this because um, what, what I, when I think of that story, in some ways to me, I think of it as almost as a commentary on the chosen one idea because as I think you said so well, like she isn't really a, a chosen one figure in and of herself, but 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 the, the especially in the third book, there's really the and in the third movie, the third and fourth, there's really this understanding of like they want to make her the, appear to be the chosen one. Because that's a great media play, you know. That's the way to get, um, you know, political opinion to be on their side. Is that if people think there is a chosen one, 
then they're going to be brave enough to rise up and to fight themselves. Yeah, and I think that there was a really valid point in there that um, people who are <clears throat> people who are so oppressed and downtrodden and have no reason to think that anybody like them could ever make a difference, it is important to have somebody presented to say, look, she was just like you and she's making a difference mm. and you can too. And that was one of the things that was so exciting to me in the course of watching um, the first two movies in particular was um, watching this groundswell of resistance from the people. And I think that was probably my biggest disappointment with the third one was that I, I was like geared up for like power to the people and this is going to be like revolution and she's like La Passionara, like, you know, better yeah. to, to, you know, die on one's feet than live on one's knees, you know, like that kind of thing. And it ended up like kind of taking this turn into more a more traditional uh, thing where she's got like, you know, her little squad of people and they're doing like this, you know, um, and they're doing this um, uh, mission, you know, to, to, to go in and defeat all the traps and everything. And like everything that the people have done up to that point is just kind of pushed into the background. And that really disappointed me actually. Yeah. I definitely felt that, especially because I, 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 I love that in the books, but I thought even in some ways I thought the movies did an even better job. You know, there's that wonderful scene. I think it's in the I think it's in the first movie, um, but it may have been in this. Yeah, it was in the first movie of when when um, her her friend from uh, Rue, her friend from um, District Eleven, you mm -hmm. know, dies, and she does the wonderful like finger gesture and covers her body with flowers, and then you see how just that one moment causes the people watching in District 11 to rise up and start fighting back, you know? And yeah. I just, I, I get goosebumps just talking about it now. Like, I, because I, to me, that that can be such an interesting idea of saying, like, I, I think, because to me, I, my first thought is it feels very cynical, but I, but I, you're pointing out something I hadn't thought of, which is that it's cynical, but it's, but it's true that to some extent, a media-created chosen one narrative can have a lot of power, you know, and can really be an incredible inspiration. And in that world, maybe a, a big part of what was needed to, to to inspire people to fight against injustice. Exactly, and in that case, it's valid because she is the real deal. You right. know, it's not purely like she wasn't just plucked out and they said like, oh yeah, like we're going to build you up like this, but it's just a, a facade. Like she actually lives that experience. Well, and, and, um, and I like it because I, I, I do sometimes think that with the, the Chosen One stuff, it can be a little easy um, for the opposite to happen. You know, I mean, I've sometimes thought if I was a, uh, a disaster worker in a world in which Superman existed, I, mm -hmm. why do I go to work in the morning? You know, yeah, right? like, yeah. like it's my job to put out, you know, the forest fire. Well, no, Superman can come along and blow it all down. So to, to me, like a, a chosen one could really be a because they are chosen, no one else needs to do anything. And I think mm -hmm. you're right. Hunger Games is, is such the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. There is a real, real danger in promoting that sort of authoritarian rescue fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, you know, going to make explicit parallels to things that are going on in the country right now but <laughs> you know this idea of like one powerful figure who's going to come and take care of everything and we can just be sort of infantilized and helpless like yep. that's not interesting to me like to me what's interesting is the person who who does come in and say like you know how can i how can i empower you how can i support what you're doing how can i um 
you know be part of your rebel alliance or you know like right. your your revolution or whatever it is um no i think you're right i think that that's it, to me that's a much more interesting story and it's a lot less it's a lot less scary cuz i i i'm definitely scared on any side when i hear that kind of like well we just this other person's going to save everything yeah you know, Two things I know you had on your list of examples you wanted to talk about, and I really want to hear where you're coming from with them, is um, Wonder Woman, and then particularly, uh, this raises a real eyebrow for me, the Lego movie. Um, So I'd love to hear more (laughs) about both of those. What's going on with the chosenness in in both of those? So so Wonder Woman, I... I was thinking about because I just read a pretty interesting article. I didn't agree with all of it, but it was something called like um, why Wonder Woman is the hero we need today for for this world or something like that. Um, I think I literally just saw it last night and, um, and it was talking and and I love Wonder Woman, like, you know, like a a lot of girls who grew up, you know, with pretty much, it was like princess Leia and Wonder Woman were like what we got. Um, But, uh, what I was thinking about was the fact that to some extent she is kind of exceptional and, and privileged in her world because she is a princess mm-hmm. and she is occupies a high social status in her world. Um, but the world is generally shown to be, you know, on the whole, it seems pretty utopian, utopian and, and somewhat egalitarian and, um, you know, the, to the extent that we see it. Um, and she goes to, she, when she um, takes Steve back and and you know leaves her her world behind. She's going to be an ambassador between you know her kingdom and um, and the United States, effectively, um, but really kind of the rest of the world. And and she uses like her a lot of what she is expecting to do is diplomatic right and you know and she tries to very hard to actually suss out the truth i mean it's yeah it's a convenient plot device that she has you know the the lasso of truth and um so it's you know she can prove that she is you know morally in the right if she's tying up a bad guy you know (laughs) but um but it was to me it was an interesting alternative to the whole you know um hypermasculine might make right kind of thing because uh i know i'm not going to get this exactly right but the code that um her that the amazons live by was like um it was like don't kill if you can subdue don't subdue if you can uh, if you can pacify mm. um don't pacify if you can um talk or like you know like don't talk until you can reach out like i know i just got that completely wrong but right um but the point being that the the first thing that you do <clears throat> is extend a hand and try to understand what's going on and try and find out what the truth is and you exhaust all of the the diplomatic options available to you before you know you go in with guns blazing right um but, which and I, that's i would say in and of itself is a you know a, I would imagine that in the 1950s or even earlier, you know, like that that was seen as a very like, okay, well, she's the female superhero. So, of course, she can't be as strong and she has to be kind of diplomatic and that that'd be seen in a very negative light. Whereas today I look at that and go, you know, why in the world doesn't every hero have that? That's such basic like 
anti-toxic masculinity ideas, you know? Exactly, and I really think that that's why that character is really kind of resurging now. I think so, um, yeah. I'm so excited to see what the movie brings. I, yep. I really hope that it's not just, like, explodey, blow everything up, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, like, one of the, the other things that I was thinking about was... Um, I don't know where it came from, but I just saw it going around on Facebook. There was like a like a four or five panel thing with Wonder Woman and a little girl of color named Peony who has just discovered that she has power. Oh yes, uh, to I saw this. flowers. And Wonder Woman like basically like get you know gives gives her the lasso and asks her like do you you know vow to help people and she's like that's all I want to do and and you know and Wonder Woman says to her like it's not for me to choose you know what how you use your powers and what you do with the world but you know i'm here to to support you and and you know and i think that this is a wonderful thing that you're doing right and it's just really really empowering this young girl and and inspiring her and i just like i I thought like you know that's what i want to see heroes do like i kind of check out a lot of the time like i I love like the avengers movies and the Mm -hmm. you know marvel universe and everything but i check out a lot during the like the big you know like massive property destruction scenes where it's just all like these in basically invincible people fighting each other and you're kind of like well there's not really a whole lot at stake because they've already established like none of these people are going to die so yeah. you know so like I'm thinking about like are there any people trapped in that building that they just you know knock down with a fist you know or whatever um, and so it's to me it's really important and refreshing to present a story where there where diplomatic options are not boring and where you can be creative, you can be subversive, you can be kind of a trickster about, you know, how you approach conflicts. And that can still be really, really interesting to watch. And it's not just about who can smash the hardest. Yeah. And and strength is not measured in masculine terms. Which and I, I will say that was something I I really loved about the end of Doctor Strange. Uh, we talked about this a bit on the last podcast, but just because, you know, it it's the only one of the superhero movies I can I can think of where the final boss battle isn't a violent one. You know, where yeah. he, it, it's such a great flip of that. Um, yeah. But but I also just to go back, I I, I I there was one thing in particular that you said that really struck me when you're saying that how Wonder Woman like she doesn't choose Peony, but she empowers her and she inspires her and she affirms her. And I think yeah. that's such a that's such a nice idea of thinking like what does it mean if instead of thinking like somebody has to be chosen by someone else that it's just that it's more about you know you choose yourself but you might in your friends and in your colleagues find find inspiration and affirmation exactly and then the the Lego movie yeah that... <laughs> I want this I want to hear <laughs> so um, uh, Emmett the main character is set up to be literally the chosen one like they actually talk about that Mm -hmm. and they go through the whole movie and again you know spoilers but if you haven't seen it by this point that's kind of tough um (laughs) what are you doing with your life go stop this podcast go watch that movie get ready for lego batman come back go ahead exactly um so uh so yes, yeah, so they go through this whole thing, and I can't remember the name of the you know the great old wizard that they encounter, and he finally and the the wizard like just admits that he made up the the whole prophecy, right? And and just assigned it to him randomly, and so it's like kind of upending that whole thing. But then he goes on to um to confront Lord Business, 
And again, it's a nonviolent confrontation. Like he's basically saying like, hey, like you can, you know, you could do all these great things with your life and, you know, like and gives them like this, this really like wonderful speech. And he does end up basically, you know, defeating the boss. But so it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, yeah. and that's what I thought was one of the better examples like even though it was a false prophecy sometimes when you tell people you know if you tell people like i don't have a way to prove this but i believe that you have it in you to do great things in this world you know i don't i don't can wouldn't condone like telling somebody like god has chosen you for this thing and then it turns out to be bullshit you know but um but to say, like, you know, I see something in you and I, I really want you to pursue that and and I want to support you and I want, you know, I want you to do what you need to do in order to become that person. I mean, people people want thing want great things expected of them right. and they want to rise to the call. And I, I think that's probably the most valuable thing about the Chosen One mythos is – the thing that we can take away is like who can we look at in the world that is overlooked and discarded and you know and and under um underestimated and like how do we go to them and 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 find what it is that they have to contribute to the world and say like no you're we believe in you you're better than that and I, I feel like that is something that you know everybody should be the chosen one in whatever it is that they are there to do. Yeah, I, I think there's so much power there. It's funny when you we were talking about that. I was thinking actually of the story of Dumbo, um, which I haven't seen in at least thirty years. But did, did you ever see that cartoon when you were a kid? Oh God, yes. Yeah, Cried just, many times at that one scene. Oh yeah, I mean, and and the whole co- in it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Although again, I question your life choices. Um, but but um, the, it, it's this, it, the, it's where this idea of the magic of a magic feather comes from, or, or at least the, the, this particular trope of. You know, Dumbo believes that he can't fly. Someone tells him that if he's holding a magic feather, then he can fly. And that kind of gives him the permission to do what he was always able to do. And eventually he realizes, somewhat painfully, but he does realize that he doesn't actually need the magic feather. He has the power in and of himself. Um, And I do think a lot of the... uh, I'm now starting to think, how much can we reframe these Chosen One stories as permission stories? You know, that like... It's not as much about someone being chosen as much as it is about someone feeling like that they have the ability to do this thing that's always been inside them. Um, yeah. So, and I think that's one of the things that tends to um, be great and enduring about a lot of superhero stories is that even you know, even though you have these origin events and like to some extent they're chosen ones, like there's actually fewer of them than I, I thought when I was you know kind of going through looking for examples there are fewer of them that are um <clears throat> like very cut and dried you are chosen for this destiny yeah like so many of them are this circumstance happened your parents got killed you got bitten by a spider like whatever it was and then it's like what did what do you decide to do with that yeah i mean one one of my favorite versions of these stories and i i know we, we mentioned a little bit before um when you and i were talking but i think not yet today is in star wars um which and I, I know you said you're not a huge Star Wars fan, and that that's totally okay. Um, but but one of the things that I I, I think the um, 
it happens with both Luke and with Anakin, and I believe George Lucas said that he did this intentionally because it's something that often comes up in a lot of these kind of hero's journey stories, especially in, in, in some of the Asian, like, samurai kind of stories, is the idea of a character who actually is rejected as a potential chosen one at first. You know, that, that both Luke and Anakin, like, some people think they could be the chosen one, but others are like, no, they're too old, or they can't be trained, or there's something wrong with them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's definitely, I think, something I, you see in a couple of other settings where there's sort of a tension of, like, a character who at first people think might be the chosen one, but then it seems like, no, he isn't, and he has to kind of, or she has to kind of, like, reassert themselves and re-earn that status, because actually the main point of the story is that they're not thought of as the chosen one. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that to me is just another kind of fun flip on the on the trope. Yeah, I am actually a, a, a pretty big uh, Star Wars fan. I'm just not as... Um... I'm not the kind of mega fan. Like I don't know a lot of the canon outside of the movies. Oh, so okay. I was, well, my apologies. It was more that I was like, that... yeah, reluctant no, I... to to be like, oh yes, well this thing happens, and then somebody's gonna like be on my Twitter and be like, well actually, if you read <laughs> this novel, I'm like, no, I never read that. But <laughs> no, no then, then you and I are in the same place. I mean, I am I am of the um, I already have my tickets for Rogue One. I can't wait for it. Um, but I haven't read most of the books. I didn't play most of the video games. I um, I, I know the movies and the cartoon, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I think is really interesting about that is I, I think it's it's shape and it's it's still not a complete story yet. So I'm interested to see where it goes. Um, is that the movies that you and I grew up with, the first three? Um, you know, it, it seems it, it's an interesting twist because it starts out seeming like. Luke is the you know is this chosen one character and it, it is his hero's journey and this all all this kind of thing, but um, George Lucas has said in at least a couple of times that Anakin Skywalker was the you know the real chosen one and he fulfills that destiny by you know spoiler alert killing the the emperor right um so you know so it, in a lot of ways it's a what we've got to this point kind of accepting the, the the force awakens for the moment um is you know this pretty sophisticated redemption story mm. um which i find you know i love a good redemption story so i find that like really interesting and the fact that the protagonist of the the um initial three movies is um is actually a catalyst um more so than the um the hero of the story in that sense right and i think that's a really really interesting way to go and i was just reading something about um by the time the you know these cur- the this current trilogy ends who's going to be revealed to be like sort of the ultimate chosen one like is mm. is luke like now picking up a destiny um now that you know anakin is dead or is anakin gonna like come back to life or is it going to be Ray or you know like what's going to happen with that well and it's part of why I admit I am so excited for the new Rogue One movie because to me and and I I had a similar feeling about the Harry Potter about Fantastic Beasts and was a little disappointed in how it, it became more of a prequel but like you know in both the Harry Potter world and the Star Wars world you have stories that are about these fascinating worlds but the stories are told entirely about that chosen one person um, mm-hmm. and the people around them. And, and like you said, maybe Luke isn't himself the chosen one, but he's obviously a direct protagonist in that story. 
But in Rogue One, if it is what I think it's going to be, it looks like we're going to have a story about, you know, some of the people who are a little bit off camera, you know, like the kind of bit players who really the entire story is just about setting up the MacGuffin of the, the, the original Star Wars New Hope movie, you know, those plans that wind up in R2. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it'd be so great to have a movie where, yes, in this world, people are chosen. But that's not who this movie is about. You know, this movie is about just the common people doing something amazing. Yeah, that's really exciting to me, too. Because, um, yeah, like the other thing that you don't that, – that doesn't tend to come out of these stories a lot is the idea that that the chosen – being the chosen one maybe isn't something that has to be the rest of your life. Like right. maybe it's this point in time. I mean we see that again in, in – we see that in real life with – you know, revolutions or big movements or something like somebody rises and becomes a leader and a symbol and an icon of that particular movement and is very, very influential. But once that, you know, that that crucial point passes, then they have the rest of their life, you know, and they don't necessarily have to be, you know, fighting bosses for the rest of their existence. <laughs> certainly hope not. They pass the, yeah, really, like, you get to pass the torch on. I think that's kind of a comforting and healthy thing to, mm-hmm. to present as well. Um, uh, th- this is part of why I've always loved, um, and we should wrap up, but maybe can this be a last thing, and then I don't want to hear any last things from you. Um, but it's why, I, I, I've never, s- there was one movie about it recently that was decent, there was a much older movie that was pretty good, but I've always loved the Zorro stories. Because, oh, yeah. Because it's, I mean, he is, I, I would say, a, certainly a very, like, you know, a pre-comic book myth, but but certainly a perfect comic book style hero. Um, yeah, growing out of that pulp tradition. Exactly, yeah. But but it is also this idea of that Zorro, you know, Zorro isn't one particular person who's born, lives, and dies. That Zorro is a mantle that different people take up and they become, it's almost like the Dread Pirate Roberts. You know, you become yeah. Zorro for a while and then you pass it on to someone else. And and it is chosen in that regard in that one Zorro picks another. Um mm-hmm. but but it's but it's this idea of a hero that's almost above and beyond an individual person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's this mythology that's almost become like its own thought form and, and needs a person to inhabit it. Exactly. Exactly. Well great. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we touched on or hit on? I mean we could go for hours on this, I'm sure, but <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, the the last thing that I was just thinking of was um, when we we're talking about like you know heroes having a rest of their life. One of the I feel like the greatest um, little deconstructions of the reality uh, behind being a superhero was in Astro City. Um, I haven't seen I don't that. Know if so ever... t- no, tell me about it. it yeah, Astro City. Um, uh, took what it tended to do was to create stories that um were clearly analogs to very <clears throat> to very well-known superhero stories but to um twist them in some way and to look at an aspect of them that had never really been examined and so there's one in particular um which is a great example of what the the book was about in general um where the the viewpoint character in that one, because there were always like different viewpoint characters, but the viewpoint character in that one was basically their Superman analog. And the entire book is how 
the thing that he loves the most in the world is to fly Mm. and he just flying everywhere but he doesn't get to enjoy it because he's always needed someplace and somebody's always looking for rescue and there's always a bad guy and there's always so and you know and then people want to honor him with stuff and he's got to go to this banquet and he's got (laughs) to you know and he's got to give a press conference and then he's got to fly off and save somebody else and he's always burdened with this guilt of knowing that people are expecting him to show up and save them and he can't possibly do it all Mm. and so and and there are just like these occasional you know brief brief periods where he gets to just do nothing but fly and it's it's heartbreaking because you know it's like that was the best presentation i think i've ever seen of the i wish i could have a normal life you know yeah because he's not saying like I want to give all this up he's just like I just wish that you know I could put the world on hold for a little while and do something that I love and you know and 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 to me like those are stories that delve into questions like that I'm like please writers do more of that because like you know as much as sometimes the chosen one annoys the crap out of me like let's cut them some slack and like let them have something good in their lives for a change well yeah I mean it seems because it, it to me that's the mirror image of what we were saying before about the sort of whininess of the superhero because then that that's the person who it feels like just you know they they are the superhero that's all they want to be but they're but they're complaining about it that's so different than the kind of thing that you're talking about where because it really makes us wonder like what what are we doing to a person by choosing them you know what kind of a life are we taking away from them by making exactly. them go off and do this um which to me is also one more of the reasons why it becomes the like you know by choosing someone you're some like we said before that there's a real danger in by choosing someone it means everyone else is not chosen but mm-hmm. but if you look at it as like someone is chosen sort of you know by, by the masses by choosing someone it means we're letting ourselves off the hook you know yeah. and so is there also the idea of not only should we be empowering all of ourselves but also giving all, you know that it's the flip side of the spider-man's saying of with great power comes great responsibility that the problem to me of that saying is what you're then saying is well i don't have great power so i don't have great responsibility exactly so how yeah. do we kind of fight that together so Awesome. Well, well, thank you. I think yeah, it's a great way to add it uh, to end it. And Astro Boy is definitely on my list of stuff I want to take a look at. You're not not the first to point it out to me. Um, uh, Rebecca, for people who've really been interested in what you have to say and who want to hear more, um, how can they find you? How can folks find some of your writings or, or keep up with you on social media? Um, well, I have my website divamojo.com, which has a blog, so you can follow me there. Um, I'm also diva underscore mojo on Twitter and. Um, on uh, Facebook, you can follow my page, uh, which is Diva Darling. Um, that tends to be more performance-oriented, but I, I throw up some other interesting stuff there every so often. Um, I also uh, produce an event um, that's hopefully going to go monthly in D.C. called Smut Slam D.C. Awesome. It is a uh, an open mic storytelling a slam um, for first-person real-life sex stories, cool. and it sounds really like super salacious, and and it is fun, and and uh, and uh, you know it gets kind of dirty and and all that kind of thing. But it's also like a really cool bonding, like often very moving um, experience. So we are going to be um, so so that's dc.smutslam.com if you're interested in that. Um, we're going to be announcing venues and dates for the new year pretty much any day now awesome awesome 
Cool. Well, yeah, yes, yeah, so definitely those are great ways to check out uh, Rebecca and her work. Uh, and I will make sure um, when this post goes up on the on the website, we'll have in the show notes uh, uh, links to her Twitter and to her website and other ways to find her writings and, and activities and stuff like that. Um, as for this podcast, obviously, you can find us uh, on iTunes or on Stitcher at Superhero Ethics Podcast. Uh, you can find another website at superheroethics.com. Uh, and the best way to find us is on Twitter or on Facebook. Just look for Superhero Ethics on either one of those things, no space, um, and let us know what you think. Like, um, I know, uh, Rebecca, I'm sure you would love to, to stay involved with Twitter conversation. Tweet on us, post on Facebook, talk to us about what, what do you guys think about the hero, um, the chosen one as a hero. Is it problematic? Is it a great thing? What are examples you see? What are ones that uh, you disagree with us on? Uh, let us know. Be part of the conversation because um, that's really a great way to um, to keep it going and, and to, to give us the kind of feedback we love to um, you know to, to keep these conversations happening and, and to see where we're going to go for future episodes. So, uh, Rebecca, again, thank you so much for taking part in this. Everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll talk more to you soon. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye.